Welcome to Women in Academia podcast with Irena, where I will interview female researchers to understand the challenges that women in academia are facing today. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy today to have Dr. Sho Tsuji on the podcast. Sho is the founder of Baby Lab at University of Tokyo, where I'm very happy to be postdoc. Hello, Sho. Thank you for being my guest today. How are you? Hello, Irena. I'm very happy to be here. I'm well, and you? <laughs> Can you introduce yourself and tell me more about your current position? Yes. So um, I'm Sho, and I started um, my position as a principal investigator at IRCN, uh, the International Research School for Neural Intelligence in, at the University of Tokyo a year ago. And um, yeah, basically, I was in charge to build uh, a baby lab from scratch there. Thank you for the introduction. Can you tell me more about your background and what brought you to the research? Yes, so um, I studied uh, psychology, cognitive uh, psychology in, in university. So my parents are both researchers, though in physics. So I think being a researcher was never really choice very far away from me, you know. But when I studied, I still wasn't sure. And I studied psychology because I'm very interested in people, in human beings. And I also thought I might be able to go into industry with it, you know, in HR or to become a clinical psychologist. So I thought, or to go into research. So I thought there's many options. But later on in the process, I realized that instead of becoming a clinical psychologist, I would have rather wanted to study medicine to become a psychiatrist. And instead of becoming a psychologist in industry, I would have rather wanted to study business or management and go into a business. So that's why I thought, oh, actually, I think um, research would be a really nice, nice way to continue with the topic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What are the biggest challenges you have faced and obstacles you have to overcome on your journey? And if you had to start over, what would you do differently? So I must say that, um, and I'm probably one of the very few ones that say that in academia, but I must say that I really haven't had many obstacles and challenges along my way. So I think I was very lucky to always uh, work with great people um, that were very helpful along the way. So I think I've never seriously struggled, I would say. Um, But I do think that what has helped is also that in my close family, uh, I've had someone that had a very um, severe depression at one point in their career, who is also an academic. And I think actually this probably has saved me because uh, from my PhD onwards, I think I was very Uh, conscious about the fact that you have to have some kind of work-life balance, although I think we talk about that later. I don't think I'm perfect at that, but I think just knowing that you just can't focus all your energy only on work, uh, I think has saved me from a lot of trouble because I think I never really got close to having any, um, yeah, any mental exhaustion, etc. So yeah, I don't think I've had a really severe obstacle But of course, there's always things that you might want to do differently. And for instance, one thing that I was very proud of always early in my career was to be very independent. And so I really kind of tried to have my own research projects from very early on. And I guess because I was very motivated and and, um, kind of, yeah, kind of pushed it forward. I think my advisors never said anything against it because I was just doing it on my own. But honestly, in hindsight, I think that especially early on in your career, it's also nice to uh, just take on projects from other people and to learn from them. So I think for me, uh, I think from early on, I had an image of being a researcher, of always being creative on creating your own thing. But honestly, if you just start your PhD, you just don't have that much knowledge and you just can't. Some people can, but I'm definitely not smart enough to come up with a genius idea from scratch. So I think early on, probably I would have benefited from being a little bit more 
uh, modest and trying to just learn rather than create myself. So I think this is something that I might have, might advise other people to do a bit differently. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell me how do you manage your work-life balance? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So as I said, I think uh, I'm very conscious of that. So I think uh, in general, it is fine. I would say that I do work a lot, but I think all academics work a lot. So that is just a fact. So I still do not have children. So this um, helps me to be able to work a lot, I think. And in general, I think I'm really trying to make a lot of time to make appointments with friends, etc., in the evenings so that I really have to leave work sometimes because otherwise I will just continue working because there's always work to do. So I think I'm really trying to be very conscious about that, also making time for sports, etc. So this is fine. That part is fine. <clears throat> However, I think, um, so I, I've basically, I've been in eternal long distance relationships uh, during my uh, career and I'm still in a long distance relationship now uh, between Europe and Japan. So this is really far um, with no very soon prospect for this to end. And I think this is a part of my life where I really think that I've prioritized my career a lot over the past years and time just passed. It just goes so fast and I'm realizing that, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's never too late, but I think there's, it's very possible if you're very busy and put an emphasis on one part of your life that you kind of don't realize um, how much you have actually uh, not put effort into the other because I think both private life and work need a lot of commitment and effort on compromise. And I think I'm definitely now uh, thinking that I'm ready to shift a little bit more focus on the private side of life as well. Thank you for that. Can you tell me more about your research? Um, yes, with pleasure. So uh, I work on uh, language acquisition in young children and babies, and um, I'm uh, especially focusing on the role of the social environment in that. And I think this is also something that I got very interested in during my PhD. So during my PhD, I was more working really on how they learn speech sound categories, etc. So more about the structure of language. Uh, but while doing experiments, like uh, you might also know habituation, where babies, we have to bore babies uh, a lot before they get a reaction. I think I just realized that their attention to things is really important for their learning. So it's not only the content, the structure of language they learn, but also how they learn that is really, really important to uh, explain their amazing learning capabilities. So this is why I got into that. And yeah, then I think I just realized that uh, we still don't know so many things about how they actually learn from the social environment because, of course, the social environment is incredibly complex and uh, yeah, has so many different uh, aspects. Uh, so we know in general that they learn better from it, but what are the exact things that make it better? Uh, what are the mechanisms, etc.? And so I guess I tried to really strike a balance between trying to recreate a reasonably naturalistic social environment where it's not one isolated uh, social cue, but also trying to be able to isolate the influence of certain social cues, like whether something is interactive, whether there's a smile, etc., in order to see uh, which, uh, which elements are important for which aspects of acquisition. So which ones signal that this is something to learn, which ones just draw attention, etc. So yeah, I really try to map out the space of the social environment that is the most relevant for learning. Thank you. What are your hopes for your future research? 
well, of course, to find answers to this question. Um, but I think uh, also maybe uh, similarly urgently, uh, the whole question of creating a very robust uh, psychological science that is replicable and transparent. Um, yeah, I think most people um, have heard that in psychology about the replication crisis mm -hmm. that we have in psychology. Many studies are not very replicable, not very robust. And this is a big problem in baby studies as well, because we can only collect very small sample sizes. They're always noisy. So I think it's very hard to try to really create this robust science as, as a single researcher or lab. So mm. um, yeah, I've been thinking a little a lot about this question. And so um, things that I'm currently busy with is, for instance, doing a lot of meta-analysis work and promoting this. So we have a platform called MetaLab, where we assemble um, meta-analysis on cognitive developmental studies. And so uh, we really try to promote that people use this as basis for new studies to see um, uh, where the effect sizes actually lie if we look at all literature, etc., which I think is one step to overcome this mm. problem that each lab can only run uh, little studies. Um, and I'm also engaging in one of the many babies projects, which is a project uh, to do replications basically around the globe uh, of phenomena. And there we are now setting up uh, online protocols. Um, and I think online experiments are very promising in general because uh, we can only test certain things, of course, online. So online means that the babies are at home and look at the screen with their parents where we just get the data transferred uh, to the lab. So this means that the conditions are not very controlled but uh, we can actually uh, access a much wider population, much more diverse, et cetera. So I think this is also one way to remedy this problem. Um, so yeah, I think my hopes for the future is that we can really find good ways to continue our work, but yeah, in a way that really leads to uh, very robust results, mm -hmm. to robust theories, et cetera. Thank you. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me what are the top issues you see women in academia face today? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I think um, in general, probably the issues um, are still very similar to what they were uh, 50 years ago, just depending on the country, they might have gotten a bit better. I think there's still a pay gap. There's still um, the fact that women are less listened to. There's the fact that they might uh, have disadvantages in career advancement, etc. So I think they are still the same issues. I do think that in many Western countries and also in Japan, although I think in Japan it's often a little bit more severe, often if you're progressing early on in your career, you might even not have so many problems. I mean, it really depends, I think, uh, on, on experiences. Mm -hmm. I know people that, so for me, it was usually quite easy, uh, for others not. But I think um, you, I think every woman at one point reaches this glass ceiling. And many women say they reach the glass ceilings when they have children. So mm -hmm. when they have children, they have to go out of work for a while. They have to go home quick uh, after work. They just don't have so much time. And if a woman has to go uh, home early, it's like, oh yeah, she has a child. And if dad goes home early, it's like, wow, He's such a good dad. So I think that there all these biases get reinforced once you have a child, or I think once you get in a more powerful position, actually, because there you start seeing that um, most people around you are men, and they are used to men, and you really can uh, can um, see that the women that are there 
by the men are often seen as quota women, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, we also have women here because now we need to have women, but they're not taken as seriously, although they should be. It's just that, uh, that there's this attitude. So I think, yeah, once either you have children or you reach a position where the majority of people is men and the, the standard, working standard is mm-hmm. still very male dominated, I think uh, women really face the glass ceiling very, very strongly. Thank you for great insights. Can you tell me what is the one piece of advice you would give to somebody thinking about academia or just starting out in academia? So I think first you should really think about whether you want to be in academia Um, and which is not to say you shouldn't start, but I think you just should keep your mind open and flexible because I think uh, we see often in academia that especially doctoral students or postdocs, they really get burned out, they get really depressive. And I think one big factor in there is that they don't really see a way out of it either. So something isn't going very well, but I think they they think that either that's their only alternative because they have chosen it or they have to get through it. And I think it is important to know that you can always do something else. The earlier in your career, the easier even, but even later on, that is totally fine. It might not be easy, but um, there's much more jobs that are not in academia than that are in academia. We just don't maybe know which ones to choose. So I think really um, keeping an open mind and uh, not seeing us as the only alternative, I think helps a lot. And the other thing is, and I think, well, that's important for everyone, but maybe especially for women, just work with people that you like and that you can admire. And that I think this is the most single, most important thing. Like if you join a lab, talk to the people, get a feeling, see whether your advisor is someone that you can trust, that will have your back, etc. It's also important to see what kind of person you are. So are you someone that is very independent, then maybe you can go into a very um, high profile lab where the PI has 10 10 to 20 uh, students and postdocs and not much time for you, right? But might have great insights once a month when you can meet them. Or are you someone that prefers like having a more like close knit uh, supervision, then you might choose for maybe a younger PI or someone that has less students. So I think it's very important to look at the fit and really, really, I think creating a good network is really, really important um and i think yeah you see it really when you then grow up <laughs> like me so i think the the network that i created when i was a phd student i still have them and now they all start to have their own labs or you know are in mm-hmm. really interesting positions and i think uh and these are all people that i'm not only professionally but also personally very close to i think it's yeah it helps so much to have a good network of people that you can trust and then you really like and that whose work you really admire. Um, Yeah, I I don't really like the word networking because it sounds so strategic uh, and I think it should be uh, more natural than strategic, but I think just having in mind that just meeting people uh, that are like-minded is also really just good for your well-being in your career. Um, It's it's just a very good thing to, to, to have in mind. Thank you for great advice. Thank you so much for being my guest today. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much for giving me opportunity to work in your lab. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very looking forward to that. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening.